What is up? Asymmetry. How's everybody doing? Got a great figure in the studio tonight for the podcast, Bob Pressler, a gentleman who's been involved from, I would say, the golden era of North American bonsai in Southern California, moved into the LA scene when John Naka, Ben Oki, Harry Harau, and all of the big guns were just kind of at their peak of performance, watched the community swell, watched the community shrink, is watching the community swell again, and, and is a big part of Southern California Bonsai finding its feet again and the California Bonsai Society perpetuating its impact on bonsai in the Western world. Now, Bob came to me and presented a project of taking a tree that Benoki had collected himself and historically styled and continued to evolve as a bonsai. And in the donation of this tree upon Benoki's passing, utilizing the tree and turning it into something special and then auctioning this tree off to create a backbone of money for the Benoki Scholarship Foundation to be able to help supplement and fuel dedicated bonsai practitioners, bonsai education in any way possible that they could use this money to continue to advance their skill level. You can find the registration information on the California Bonsai Society website, californiabonsaisociety.com. The scholarship is for two people annually, $1,000 a piece. It's a very simple application to fill out, and Bob and the team are going to continue to evolve this concept. But we basically dig into the roots of California bonsai in Southern California. We talk about the scholarship. We talk about Ben Oki as a figure who's important to a lot of people in North America, helped me obtain my apprenticeship. And we'll be airing the stream on the Ben Oki California Juniper, its creation, on September 3rd, we'll also be beginning the auction. On September 3rd, it will run for a week. We'll give you more information about how you can bid on this tree if you're interested in contributing. And you don't necessarily have to buy this California Juniper to play a part in facilitating people having the ability to study bonsai and helping supplement passionate people being able to gain a bonsai education. You can donate to the California Bonsai Society and the Ben Oki Scholarship Fund. I'm going to stop talking. Bob Pressler, everybody, super pumped to be a part of this project. Appreciate the California Bonsai Society and Bob's efforts, and it's truly been an honor. Enjoy. You never know where things are going to lead to, you know? I didn't know I was to describe. Hey, hey, Lime. Yeah. Do you have your uh, phone on you? Will you look up the name of that movie, uh, Dogtown? Z. Uh, oh. Z Boys. Z Boys and Dogtown, Dogtown or yeah. something. Actually, Google um, Peggy Oki. Pe Peggy Oki. You know, it's funny that you said that because I actually remember watching that movie and seeing the name Peggy Oki, and I was like, interesting. It was Ben Oki's daughter. Yeah. <laughs> was a major cutting edge skater. Absolutely. I mean, one of one of the, you know, the the pioneers of skating. Like her dad was a pioneer of bonsai. Unreal, man. I wonder what Ben thought. Did did you ever ask Ben about that? Did you know about that? I didn't know about that then. Uh-huh. Um, I found out about it maybe ten years ago. I didn't know about it, you know, what what she was actually skating and everything. Uh -huh. So um, have you met I don't her? Know. Yeah. Uh, we've never really spent a lot of time together or anything, sure. but I've met her a few times. What is it called? Oh, oh the movie? Yeah. 
I think it's Z Boys of Dogtown or something like that. Uh, yeah, right. Hold on. But she was one of the original Z Boys. The only female. Yeah. And the story goes is that uh, she started out because she was a little bit older uh-huh. and had a license. So could drive around, like go out to the valley and go skate in these pools and stuff. And Dogtown and, and Z Boys. Yeah. Dogtown and Z Boys. That's the name of the movie. Yeah. That's Ben Hokey's daughter was a skater? Uh huh. <laughs> she was one of the original Z Boys. Yep. How crazy is that? <laughs> that, is, that just made me fall. <laughs> we're, just, we're, we're literally just driving home from having dinner, and Bob's like, "So you know, Ben Oki's daughter was one of the original Z Boys." I was like, <laughs> oh, "No, no, I didn't. I didn't know that. I did not know that. That's amazing." Yeah, yeah. Uh, and she's you know a big activist now. Um, she was involved in some art project. I think something about a thousand whales or something where they're making origami whales. Uh huh. Um, you know, this project to help save the whales. Interesting. And stuff. She's really big into, you know, saving the ocean and stuff like that. Yeah. So, I've, I mean, uh, you've told me this story before, but but I, I doubt that many people know how how sort of your journey into bonsai came to be and how you be, came to be, you know, the owner-operator of Kimura Landscape Bonsai Nursery. I, I mean, can you just tell us how you got into, but how did you start? How did Bob Pressler start in bonsai? Um, I was 10 and I got dragged to the Brooklyn Botanical Gardens and, you know, I was 10 years old. It was the first nice Sunday after the winter. And the last thing I wanted to do was go to some dumb garden. Did you grow up on the East coast? Yeah. I grew up in New Jersey. Okay. So, um, this Sunday morning I had to go with my mom and her friend, Mountain Maggie. I call her Mountain Maggie cause she had one of those Marge Simpson hairdos. Oh, uh, wow. Before Marge Simpson existed. <laughs> the beehive? Yeah. Exactly. For real? Yeah, for real. Oh, like, wow. Yeah, it was like, like this. And uh, we went to this garden, and I'll never forget, because I, I remember I was a little brat. I was, like, kicking the DG in the paths and plucking leaves off of trees. Oh, and, like, no. can we go now? Can we eat? You know, I either want to leave or eat. Right. So we went to have lunch, and the cafeteria was right near where the bonsai exhibit is. And we sat down and ordered, and I inhaled my food like most 10-year-olds do. Mm-hmm. And everybody else was just, you know, putting ketchup on their hamburgers. So my mom told me, you know, go in and look at the little trees. We'll be done eating in a little while, and then we'll go home. And the first tree I saw was a little Sergeant Juniper from Japan. The sign said it was a 250-year-old Juniper from Japan. It just blew me away. It was mm. like, you know, 12 inches tall, half dead, bleached white, you know, these great little green pads of foliage. And the moss just blew me away at the time. I had to feel the moss and touch it and everything. And I just became obsessed. At ten. At ten. And what did that obsession look like? I mean, what, what, what? I wanted, I wanted to know more about it. I wanted to do it. I used to cut school. That well, maybe not at ten. At eleven, I would cut school, take a bus from my house to downtown Newark, take a train from Newark to New York City, and then a subway from Manhattan to Brooklyn. And go see these bonsais and, you know, bug these guys. Teach me how to do this. Teach me how to do this. Wow. And um, Who is, do you remember who the curator of the Brooklyn Botanical? Okay. And, uh, yeah, at first they were like, get out of here, kid. You know, go away. Call the cops. Go back to school. Right. And then, you know, after a while, you know, probably five or six times of trucking over there. They said, okay, I guess you're interested. And, you know, brought me in the back and handed me a juniper and told me, make a bonsai. And, you know, I did what you would imagine I did to it. And he laughed at me and says, no, not like that, like this. And he puts some wire on a tree and a few little bends. And, uh-huh. you know, I'm sure you know what the result was. Sure. And I was like, wow. 
and I've been interested ever since. Huh. And um, how long of a how long of a how long of a total trek was that <laughs> from school to the actual collection? Take you a couple hours? Yeah, probably a couple hours. And then you had to come home. And then come home and act like I was in school all day. And uh, and, and what time did you have to be home by? Oh, well, it was a different time back then. No, I understand. But I'm so curious about this because this is, you know, this is not... uh, When you hear people talk about bonsai, you hear a lot about bonsai on the West Coast. But the fact that you were exposed on the East Coast and particularly at Brooklyn, the botanical gardens there... I'm just curious what that looked like and, and sort of the nuances to your journey there and back when you were doing this. It was more of, I mean, the, the trees fascinated me. Mm-hmm. I couldn't believe that something could be that old and that small. But it was more of the idea of um, doing something I wasn't supposed to do. But in my mind, it wasn't like just cutting school and going and hanging out with a bunch of kids. Right. You know, it was cutting school and going to do something really cool. Right. So it was okay uh-huh. as far as I was concerned. And it was, you know, I, I mean, if I think about it now, there's no 11-year-olds that are going to, you know, travel across state lines. They're not, you just can't do it. Yeah. Um, but, you know, back then things were different. You know, you'd go out in the morning and you came home when it got dark. That's awesome. And, you know, as long as it wasn't dark out, you were okay. That's awesome. <laughs> so, that is so cool. Yeah, it was a different time. And so did you spend, when did you, I guess, did you spend most of your formative years through high school kind of interacting with the Brooklyn Botanical Garden collection or did you leave? I mean, like, no, what did that look left. like? I would go about, you know, a couple times a year, but mostly it was kind of on my own. Uh-huh. Um, you know, I was, I was, you know, a kid, so I couldn't really afford to go buy plants. Right. But I would, you know, go out in the woods and dig stuff up and, you know, dig stuff up out of people's yards and go to the nurse. In New Jersey, in the wintertime, the nurseries all shut down. So in the fall, they were like basically giving stuff away, you know, so get rid of it for the winter. Sure. So I would go to nurseries and, you know, get stuff for super cheap at the end of the season and stuff like that. And all my friends thought I was crazy. You know, they were like, what the hell's with these little trees? But, you know, I always dug it. I didn't really know what I was doing. Yeah. But, you know, it was just a cool thing. I had trees, you know, in little pots. Yeah. Um, but it wasn't until I moved to California that I really kind of steeped myself in it, though. You know, it was more or less a hobby. Sure. You know, the whole time. And going through high school and college, you know, I always had a couple of trees, but it wasn't the focus of my life. Yeah. Where did you um, Where did you go to uh, college at? In East Orange, New Jersey. Okay. Uppsala College. Okay. What did you study? Just liberal arts. Oh, very cool. Yeah, and I only went for two years. Okay. It was... For me at the time, not the thing. Yeah. And then what, when, how soon after that did you go to California? Um, It was a while. I moved out here in California when I was 26. Okay. And shortly after I got here, um, I I moved here, it was in um, October, I think. And that March, I went to my first bonsai, actual bonsai show. Mm Mm-hmm. At the Huntington. It was a California Bonsai Society show. <clears throat> and um, I went to the Huntington. And I, you know, walk up to this room where the show is. And there's this little kind of gray, white-haired guy sitting out front laughing and smiling at people. And I'd sit hello as I walked by. And he says, hi, are you here for the Bonsai? And I said, yeah, I you know, want to check him out. And it turned out to be John Naka. 
And, uh, you know, he took me around and like, you know, showed me the trees and told me which ones are good and which ones weren't so good. Um, a couple of them, he said, this looks like a good tree, but it's too perfect. Mm. It doesn't look like a tree. And yeah, I got really lucky. I mean, shortly after I moved here, I met like the cream of the crop of American bonsai at the time. I didn't know it. Sure. You know, I had no idea who John Naka was at the time. Um, but you know, it was, it was bonsai and he told me about clubs and the first club meeting I went to, I went to uh, Sansui Kai and they used to meet in Encino at the time. And I was kind of, you know, this long haired hippie freak looking guy. <laughs> I go to this meeting, I have a t-shirt on that said, die yuppie scums. <laughs> and yeah. <laughs> Can you make yeah. that again? I want one of those. <laughs> Hair down, you know, halfway down my back. And I walk in this room, and there's a bunch of guys standing around. The first guy I see is this guy, Ed Partis, who had, like, this close-cropped, gray, you know, GI drill instructor haircut. And, you know, he looked at me, and I looked at him, and I was like, uh. But then I looked over to the side, and there was a bunch of trees sitting on the edge of a stage. So I forgot about him and walked over and started looking at the trees. And he came over and he was like, what are you doing here? You know, it's like, who's this freak? Yeah. Uh, I said, I'm here to look at the bonsai. He goes, oh, you're like bonsai, huh? And instantly forgot about my T-shirt, my long hair, and all that stuff. You know, it was it was bonsai, and that was cool. Wow. Um, and, you know, I just uh, got hooked, you know, into the, the whole Southern California bonsai scene that way. I mean, what was your motivation for moving to California from the East Coast? Why did you come all the way to the West Coast? I didn't like work, not working in the winter. Oh, wow. <laughs> I was that... in construction. Huh. And, you know, there's 30,000 people and 10,000 jobs in the winter. Yeah. You know, spring, fall, and summer, you work your butt off. And I was never one that could, you know, work three quarters of the year and save my money. You know, I'd make it and spend it. Sure. So winter times were always kind of harsh on me. Yeah. And a friend of mine moved out here and we were talking one day and she was saying, you know, I'm going to need a roommate pretty soon. My mom's moving back to Austria and I have to find a roommate. And I said, hmm, maybe I'll be your roommate. And went to LA. And there it was. <laughs> there it was. And so you moved uh, to Los Angeles then? Yeah. To Venice. Okay. First apartment in LA was right on the beach in Venice. What was Venice like at that point? Crazy. Was it? <laughs> yeah, it was pretty crazy. Um, at night, it was dead except for gangbangers. You'd hear gunshots in the distance, and nobody was on the boardwalk. During the day, it was just a zoo. It was more artist then uh -huh. than it is now. Right. You know, now it's really commercial, and you know, there's 50,000 stands all selling the same T-shirts and stuff like that. And incredibly expensive. No. Yeah, it's crazy. The, the, <laughs> I had an apartment. Wasn't then. Uh, after I, I lived with her for a while, and we had um, this awesome apartment. It was a whole top floor of a building. Oh my god! We had a, a roof, a, a ladder that went up to the roof, and we'd go up there in the mornings and have coffee and stuff. We watched a women's marathon run down from the roof, and I'll never forget the first time I saw knew that there were mountains in Los Angeles because <laughs> I moved there in September. <laughs> And it was gray and smoggy and stuff. I never yeah. saw any mountains. Oh, and in January, it rained. It was the first time it rained since I'd lived there. And we went up on the roof to have coffee in the morning. 
and I look out, and not only there are mountains, but just mountains with snow on them. <laughs> I thought I was transported someplace. I was like, what did I do last night? <laughs> it just blew me away. There was, you know, these mountains that had snow on them that I could see from my roof in Venice that I never even knew existed. Wow. Uh, so, yeah, it was a different place then. Huh. Um, it was really, really an artsy community. All those places on the boardwalk now that are, you know, saying, selling T-shirts and stuff. Back then, you know, there was a lot of people doing art and stuff like that. So that was always pretty cool. So it was a, a really kind of progressive, creative community then. Yeah, it was. Uh, but it, it was also had this kind of dark undercurrent, too, because... Um, it was pretty dangerous back then. Yeah, there were areas that we used to call ghost town. Yeah. That, you know, and I was from New Jersey. I didn't know anything about colors and red and blue and all that stuff. And I got shot at riding a motorcycle because I had the wrong color bandana around my head once. Oh, wow. Uh, you know, so, and that was a kind of a typical thing back then in Venice. You know, like you hear gunshots all the time. Um, Unreal. It, it, was, it was strange. But when I moved out of the apartment with her, I moved into, we had a landlord that decided he was going to take the apartment back because he was going to have an affair there. So we lost our place. And um, I moved into this little single and I was paying $500 a month for a single right on the boardwalk. I used to like sit in my window and hang out over the boardwalk and charge Japanese tourists money to take my picture. (laughs) 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 And, um, but that apartment was 500 bucks a month. The same apartment now I was there a couple. I was there a couple months ago. It was twenty seven hundred dollars. Oh, and other than maybe new paint and maybe some handles on the cabinets, I don't think it's any different from when I was there. So yeah, it's gotten really, really expensive. Twenty seven hundred a month. Yeah, it's crazy. Oof. Um, Yeah, rents in LA are just insane. I don't know how people how people do it. Tell you the truth. I think a lot of people don't. I don't think no, they are. Yeah, unfortunately, it. they don't. It's, yeah, it's the huh. great flight away from California. So you're in you're in California. I mean, is this the the 80s then? Yeah. Okay. Mid 80s. Mid 80s. I moved there in um 84, I guess. And and you go to this Sansui Kai meeting, sort of bone size this unifier, die hippie scum, <laughs> right? Hair. You're talking to a ex-military guy and bonsai just nullifies all differences all of it and i mean after that meeting and getting tied into that community how did your interaction with bonsai progress well i like a lot of people i joined a bunch of clubs i think i joined sansui kai descanso um santa anita and um and maybe that was it and you know i went to club meetings all the time I met people like Harry Harrell, who, you know, would take me out and go dig California junipers. Uh, I fell in love with California junipers. Yeah. You know, the first time I saw one of them, it was just like, it was like seeing my first bonsai all over again, except that it was like right there and obtainable. Yeah. Um, you know, and I probably dug a hundred California junipers before one survived. <laughs> right. A fact right. that I'm not very proud of. Sure. But, you know. Um, I'd say common. You know, uh, yeah, probably. Um, but you know, so I was really, really lucky because I really got in with these people that at the time were, you know, cutting edge bonsai. Yep. Um, I met Ben Oki and Shig Mia and Frank Goya and Mas Maraguchi, and they all used to have um, a club called the Marina Bonsai Club that met at one of the Japanese uh, community centers in the marina. 
and they would have classes there. Mm. So those were my first like real teachers. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, I was, I used to go there twice a month and, you know, was constantly crawling around in nurseries, you know, yeah. all up and down the state, you know, I bet there were some good pieces of material in the nurseries oh, there back were. In the I day. mean, when I think about it now, and I like think about the stuff that you can find back then. You could find you know, like fifteen gallon percumbens, not a juniper, is like baseball bat sized trunks, you know, thirty five dollars. Yeah, <laughs> you <Yeah>. know, <laughs> um, that was before anybody was anybody yeah. was looking, and it was also at a time where the nursery industry was a lot of ma and pa shops that that had old material sitting mm -hmm. around for a long time. Exactly. There were tons of places that, you know, you could go to, <clears throat> and especially stuff like old junipers. Mm -hmm. You know, they'd kind of gone out of favor in, in the landscape thing. So, you know, they just had these old trees that are sitting around the back of the nursery for years. They rooted into the ground and stuff, and, mm -hmm. uh, you know, you can get them for a penny. I mean, now they're like gold. Yeah, you can't find them, but. And what was, I mean, what was the dynamic like? W were there a lot of people that were a part of these clubs? Was Boneside big in Los Angeles at this time? W what did it look like? It wasn't really big in terms of percentage of the population, um, but it was bigger than most people would think. You know, like most people had no clue. Mm -hmm. and, and unless you were part of it. I mean, there was this whole world that revolved around Boneside. There's. I don't know, over a dozen clubs in mm -hmm. Southern California. So like just, for instance, the third week of the month, there's six clubs that meet in one week, you know, which is why we can do what we do at California Bonsai Society. Sure. Because we can bring people in and, you know, share them with all the clubs in that one week. Sure. But um, so, you know, in terms of the general population, no, it was pretty small. But in terms of, you know, the accessibility was incredible. You know, I, don't, I think it was probably more accessible to people than anywhere else in the country. Yeah. Maybe Northern California might have been as accessible, um, okay. but I'm not sure because, you know, it wasn't up there. You weren't there. And, but, and what, was, um, what was the dynamic like between, I mean, you had John Naka and Ben and Harry and, and this community of Japanese Americans, and were they super excited to spread the passion of bonsai or i mean what was the dynamic was it more of like they're the sensei you're the student you don't you say anything you just kind of listen and watch how did how did it all work of that. all of it yeah some of them like like john his life was sharing bonsai mm -hmm. you know i mean that was his passion not so much doing it i mean i'm sure he was passionate about doing it but his biggest passions were was sharing it mm -hmm. and you know that's his biggest claim to fame was you know he was probably the world's best bonsai ambassador right um ben loved to teach you know um all, and some of them were a little bit more reserved but you know they they all loved it they all loved to share their knowledge one thing about them is i don't think any of them like kept any secrets hmm. you know they may not have known all the stuff that we know nowadays sure you know, they did things a lot differently and, you know, people like scratch their heads now and say why. Right. But, you know, whatever they knew, they were willing to share. Yeah. And, you know, some of them were more excited about it than others, but they all, if you showed an interest, they were willing to, you know, support that. So you had basically, I mean, L.A. at that time was, in my mind, the mecca of bonsai in North America. I think it was. Um 
I mean, that's really, when you look at all of the instructors that have traveled, not just within North America, but the world, spreading bonsai. I mean, John in Europe yeah, I mean, and they the started UK there. and Australia and South Africa and, I mean, on and on. I mean, uh, really prominent. But ben, ben has been a lot of places and that fire that existed in Southern California in that period of time is really was really sort of the coals that fueled bone size growth in North America. I, I think you're right. And um, there was nobody else besides those guys at the time were doing that. You know, it was just that group of people that were traveling around the world. Mm-hmm. And, you know, John, you, everywhere, Ben too, you know, South Africa, South America, yep. um, you know, all across the country. And, you That's know, cool. it, it, it was, a, you know, Besides uh, the Karate Kid, Ben and John and that group were probably, you know, the single biggest reason that people know what a bonsai is. Yeah. Yeah. Um, That's fascinating. And they didn't care if you were, you know, some long-haired hippie freak or, you know, a judge or a plumber. You know, if you were into bonsai, you were into bonsai. The rest of it didn't matter. Yeah. Um, I mean, what what was the... What was the general mentality towards, because like coming at in a generation of bonsai practitioners, I was in school in slow from 2000 to 2004. And I saw John Naka at a Nampukai show. Didn't actually, I think I formally met him, but he was at that point. Um, probably not as as mentally aware as in a sharp as obviously he he was and so you know that's my only interaction with John Naka but the way that people talked about him after John passed away and sort of the the hole that that left in the bonsai community in Southern California I mean it's a very reverential position that people take when they speak about John Naka and the way that he taught and the way that you're supposed to do things and seeing that historically, I've always wondered, like, when he was in his prime and when that community was really just pulsing with energy, was everybody reverential of John and what he said? Or was he a part of the community like everybody else was? No, he was definitely the head of the—he was, he was the head. He was the head. You know, and John was the sensei and everybody else kind of followed behind him. Mm-hmm. Um, and he, a lot of them— on their own, you know, could have carried it just like he did. But, right. you know, John was definitely the man. And, you know, everybody kind of deferred to John. What made him the the sort of the chosen one, if you will? I think it was just his personality and the fact that he did it. Uh-huh. You know, nobody before him felt the need to share bonsai like he did. You know, um, people would form little you know, groups and clubs. There were plenty of little Japanese American clubs around, mm-hmm. but he wanted to be. He wanted it to be really all inclusive. Mm. You know, CBS is probably. I think it's the oldest English speaking bonsai club in the country. In in the California Bonsai Society, from what I understand, was an invitation only. Right at the time, it was. Uh, you had to be sponsored by another member, uh-huh. and you had a show. I think. Um, Pictures of Seven Trees, and it was a committee. It was John Naka, Ben Oki, Harry Harrell, and I think Bruce Isiasu were the, you know, the kind of the judging committee. And if they thought your trees were up to snuff, you could join. Mm. If they didn't, you didn't join. Right. Um, 
And that worked really well for a long time. I think that was one of the reasons why California Bonsai Society kind of had the reputation that it had right. of being, you know, like the cream of the cream. But it also, over time, was a big detriment to the club because, you know, after a while, it gets stagnant. It's a little stale. You know, it gets yeah. a little stale, a little old. There's not new members coming in. Um, some people started to get a little bit resentful about it. And then, you know, um, unfortunately, politics rears its head sure. all the time. So um, it became a problem. And it was probably seven or eight years ago where they started opening it up. And, um, you know, you could ask to join and uh, you didn't have to go through such a selection process. Mm -hmm. And now it's just, you know, it's open to the public. Um, we're still kind of striving to, you know, create and promote high-end bonsai um, as an art. Mm -hmm. But, um, you know, anybody can join the club now. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so, and I definitely want to come back to what you're doing with the California Bonsai Society. I like, like That's very paramount to this conversation. Grow me to that point, though. So you're now, like, heavily engaged in this community. You're a member of several clubs was there one particular person that like you gravitated towards as kind of like your mentor or, or somebody that you worked with that, or you felt close in proximity to their approach as you grew in bonsai? Two really. And they're really similar to each other. Morse Moriguchi and Bruce Hisiasu. Okay. They were both two of the sweetest men I've ever met in my life. Um, yeah, they were just like, happy individuals and uh <laughs> yeah they were i've never seen either one of them without a smile on their face like the first time my wife came to a bonsai club or uh, a show with me um uh, masmaraguchi took her by the hand and walked her around and pointed out each tree to her and you know told her who made it and what kind of tree it was and you know, just like, oh, you're Bob's girlfriend? He's a good guy. Stick with him. <laughs> and Bruce, too. You know, Bruce was just like a sweetheart. Um, so those two are probably the ones I really gravitated towards. Got um, close you know, John, of course, because John was John, um, and I felt really honored to be kind of allowed into his circle. Right. Um, but he was actually... Um, I was a little timid with John. Yeah, you know, mm -hmm. I was kind of um, not so comfortable with him early yeah. on. But Bruce and and Moss instantly, you know, just like they were my best buds. So you're living at this place in Venice. You're climbing up a ladder to enjoy your coffee in the mornings and stuff. Did you have trees at that mm -hmm. place? You did. Yeah, I brought. Unfortunately, I brought a bunch of trees from New Jersey with me. Mm-hmm. Most of which um, didn't make it. Right. Uh, I even bought a walk-in refrigerator thinking that, you know, I could put my conifers in the refrigerator over the winter and they'd be okay. And uh, the large bit at the first the first winter. Right. You know, they, they were gone. Right, right. Um, they were probably on their way out that first fall, but I didn't know it because they were, you know, going dormant. Sure. But they definitely never recovered. Ah, um, gutting. But, you know... Took a while to kind of give up the fact that there were trees that I couldn't grow and embrace the fact that there was a lot of trees I could grow. And I didn't have to worry about winterizing trees. Like, you know, I could leave my trees outside on the roof all winter. Right. And it didn't matter. Um, so I gave up on, you know, the trees I couldn't grow and embraced the ones that I could. Mm -hmm. um, 
And there were, you know, there were bonsai nurseries. Yeah, there were two bonsai nurseries that I can remember on the East Coast. But, you know, here there were, like, bonsai nurseries. There were a bunch of them. Yeah. And, um, and like, I used to go to Yamaguchi Nursery every week, every single Friday for years. I'd go into that place. I'd buy a piece of material. I'd see George Yamaguchi in the back working on a tree. And I'd go, hey, Mr. Yamaguchi, how you doing? Er. Nice tree. Er. Yeah. <laughs> and that's what I got out of him for like three years was like run. <laughs> Maybe after the fourth year, I got a hello. <laughs> and then um, after I bought my nursery, the year after I bought the nursery, we were at a convention together sitting at the same table. And he looked at me and says, oh, you're that crazy white guy that has a nursery, the bonsai nursery in, in the valley, huh? I says, yeah. He says, how's it going? I said, okay, the gate's still open. And I guess he had had a few drinks because he started talking to me then and I couldn't shut him up. Uh, <laughs> and I mean, for six years, I couldn't get him to say a word to me. <laughs> and then after that, you know, um, you were one, part of the inner circle. Yeah, now. I was part of the inner circle. And, uh, mm -hmm. you know, once, once the dam broke, that was it. There was, you know, no fellowship. Yeah. of Boneside nursery owners, but not really. Uh, it was kind of weird. And even now it's still a little weird. Um, when I first got started the nursery, I wanted to like, I had all these dreams of doing all kinds of stuff, but you know, I also didn't have any money. So there wasn't a lot of stuff that I could do, but I wanted to like bring in pots and stuff from Japan mm -hmm. and you just, I couldn't afford to bring a container load of stuff in. So I went to the local nurseries and I said, Hey, let's all get together and, uh, you know, chip in and bring in a container of pots. Nobody wanted to do it. Mm. You know, they were all, um, kind of, it was the first time I ever felt like there was a competition in the bonsai world there. Um, yeah, there was always kind of like friendly little competition between people, but the first time I, f it was the first time I was in the business, you know? So, I mean, that had a big part, part of it, but I was really upset that there wasn't that kind of solidarity, you know, where people would like get together for the benefit of all of us. Right. And the truth of the matter is, is that, you know, there's still, I don't know, seven or eight bonsai nurseries in a small area. Uh, yeah, we have customers that overlap and stuff, but we all have our own clientele. We all do have our own little niches. Hmm. So we're not, I don't look at it as being competition with each other. You know, I just yeah. think that they're just another nursery. Um, but yeah, I was pretty disappointed back then that, you know, they, they weren't willing to cooperate. Yeah, that'd be, that, that would be rather jarring, I would think, because you've just come from, I mean, you almost like crossed over the line, right? Like you came from the unity of the clubs and being a student. What year did you buy your facility? Uh, 96. 96. Yeah. And, it, and it already had the name. Yeah, it had the name Kimura. It's got nothing to do with your Kimura. Right. <laughs> um, is Jim Kimura was the owner. Um, and actually his father started, him and his father started it in the 70s. And it wasn't really a, a bonsai nursery per se. It was more of a landscape nursery. Mm -hmm. And there was a group of Japanese gardeners in the valley that had a little bonsai club. And they would meet at the nursery on Saturdays and drink beers and make little trees and sell them at their club meeting, at their club show every year. And whatever didn't get sold got put on the shelves at the nursery and got sold there. Mm. And then Jim would, you know, have his own trees there and, you know, sell some occasionally. But for the most part, it was more landscape nursery than bonsai nursery. Um, he did grow a lot of material, you know, for bonsai. Okay. So, um, 
And when I first took it over, it was still landscape nursery, bonsai nursery. Now it's pretty much exclusively bonsai. I still do landscaping. Yeah. Um, but you know, I do design, design and construction. I don't yeah. really have much. I don't have any landscape material in the nursery anymore. So were you, when you, how did you come to purchase? I mean, it's called the Kimura bonsai, Kimura bonsai and landscape nursery. And landscape is, nursery. Yeah, okay. the official name. Uh, and, and so, how did you come to purchase this from Jim Kimura? <laughs> Um, were you landscaping at that point? No. Okay. I was a painting contractor. Okay. And um, how long had you been in, so this is 96. So you've been in LA t- 10, yeah, maybe like not quite years. 10 years, well, 10, 12, 12 years. Yeah. 12 years. Okay. All right. Uh, and you know, Jim Kamara and I had become friends uh-huh. because yeah, it was a, a, a nursery that had stuff for bonsai. So, you know, I was there all the time. Yeah. How many trees do you have at this point? Then, um, I mean, are you just like. Couple hundred. Okay, so you're yeah. you're yeah, like I, neck I deep in bonsai. Yeah, I was one point. of those freaks that you you're know, in. had. You know, like I lived in a little guest house in North Hollywood with a backyard about the size of this room, and I had trees on top of trees. Yeah, you know, cool um, on top of the wall, and like these people thought I was crazy when I was moving in. I had like um, a, a, a futon and a bunch of books and a chair. And trees <laughs> and cinder blocks and planks, you know, they're yes. like, yeah, pickup truck full of my clothes and my futon and then 20 truckloads of trees and, and planks and blocks. You know? Nice. Um, the addiction is real. <laughs> but yeah, you know, I was just one of those people that became obsessed yeah. and, you know, um, uh, had just had to do it. Couldn't help myself. I know? totally relate. Um, so I, uh, I was in the valley doing the job, and I stopped at the nursery just to say hello. And it was a Wednesday. And Wednesdays actually became a kind of an important day for Kimura Bonsai, and you know, I'll explain a little bit more later. But I stopped in on a Wednesday, and there was a sign out front that said, for sale. And I was like, wow, this is weird. And I said, Jim, what's up? Why are you selling the nursery? And he says, well, you know, I've been sick, and um, Brian, his son, didn't want to have anything to do with it. He was a school teacher, and, you know, he just didn't want to have anything to do with the nursery, period. Mm-hmm. And it was too much work for him and his wife. So he was just going to sell the, the nursery if he could, at the very least sell the land. And uh, so we talked a little bit, and, you know, I was a successful contractor. And, you know, I had, I had a really good clientele. I was making probably better money than I do now. Um, but I didn't, I don't, I still to this day don't know why we were talking and he was telling me he's has to sell it. He's not feeling good, blah, blah, blah. And I said, so how much do you have to sell it for? And he told me, and I should have known then that I was in trouble. Cause my first thought was, wow, that's not really that much. I mean, I don't have any money, but that's not that much. Right. So we talked for a little bit and I left and it planted like this seed in my head, you know, and I was like thinking, wow, it'd be cool to own a nursery. And I could like, I started all these ideas. I was going to, you know, buy this place and turn it into like this school of international bonsai and have all these people come in and teach classes and, mm-hmm. you know, become like a bonsai mecca in Los Angeles. And, um, I went to the library and I got, this is before I had a computer, you know, they still had computers, but, but I didn't have one. Right. I went to the library and I got a book on writing up uh, financial plans because I figured I was going to come up with a business plan and see if I can get an SBA loan. 
And I went to a friend of mine when I was done, who's a financial guy, and I said, hey, do me a favor, look at this and tell me what you think. And he read it over, it was like three pages. And he was like, this isn't a business plan, this is a pipe dream. Uh, but oh, you know what? Man. And that's why I was like, oh man. But, oh. but he goes, but you know what? Um, you might be able to do it. Uh. You know, you've got some good ideas. Some of them probably will never happen, but you know, you might be able to do it. I'll loan you the money. Oh, what? And that just blew me away. Oh. You know, I was thinking I was going to have to like go beg the SBA to try to get a loan. And, you know, we talked and one thing led to another and, you know, I had like funding. So I called Jim Kimura up and I said, Jim, I want to talk to you about buying the nursery. And at first he got really mad because he, he didn't think I was serious. And I said, no, I'm serious. You know, I, I, I can get the money. I have a lot of ideas. Let's talk. So it was another Wednesday, a week later, this is one week. I went, we sat down and talked and I told him what I wanted to do. And I had all these plans. You know, we were going to have classes and this and that. And um, he said, wow, you're serious. And I said, yeah, I'm serious. He says, all right, well, I'll tell you what. He cut the price of the business by 50%. Oh, my gosh. From the original quote. And sold me a half of an acre of land in the middle of the San Fernando Valley for $110,000. Oh, my God. <laughs> Woo! Yeah. <laughs> so it took about a month to you know, do all the paperwork and all that stuff. And again, it was another Wednesday that I actually took over as the official owner. Wow. You know, and he died that Friday. Can we back up? What did the, the banker, friend, the loan guy say to you? As far he, as when he went, when he got cut in half, was he shocked? Or? Oh yeah, he was. He was like, "What'd you do?" <laughs> I was like, "I don't know." He know? just wa he just wanted it to live yeah, on. Yeah, he, he just what? Yeah, because you know, he there was some. Um, I'm not sure who they were, but anyhow, there were a group of people looking to buy the land. They just wanted the land, and they were going to you know, develop it or something. it or something. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And he really liked the idea, A, that it would stay as a nursery. Yeah. And, yeah, he was into bonsai, so he really thought that, you know, this was going to be a cool thing. You think, oh, wait, maybe this pipe dream might become a dream. Yeah. <laughs> it comes true. So, um... You so took over on a Wednesday I, and he died I on took Friday? took over on a Wednesday and he died that Friday. Oh, my gosh. What? And I was like... You know, blown away because I didn't expect him to come work for me, but we had talked about it and he was going to like be around and kind of introduce me to, you know, all the the vendors and all that stuff and kind of teach me his secret to grow moss. This guy would grow flats of perfect, beautiful green moss in the middle of the San Fernando Valley. <laughs> oh, wow. um, you know, and I could never figure out how to do it. I still couldn't figure out how to do it. When I took over the nursery, I had 50 flats of that stuff. And, you know, unfortunately, I made the mistake of selling them off. Yep. And I could never regrow it. This is the first year, this year, since then, that I've ever been able to grow moss. <laughs> this year? This year. 2019. 2019. Yeah. Wow. Boom. <laughs> so, um, but anyhow, so that was a Wednesday. He died Friday. Monday was his funeral. I went to the funeral in the morning. And, you know, you know the trees need water. They need water. They don't care if it's Christmas or if somebody's dead or sure. whatever. They need to be watered. So I was in the back of the nursery watering, kind of feeling really overwhelmed, you know, because I just kind of turned my life upside down. I like, yeah. you know, pretty much started to give up a business that I had had for a long time and a successful business and, you know, stepped out into this venture that, you know, I didn't know what was going to happen. 
And I'll never forget, I was in the back of the nursery watering, and out loud I said, Jesus, Jim, now what? And clear as a bell, I heard him say, finish watering. <laughs> oh, man. And that's what I've been doing since then, <laughs> you know. <laughs> yeah, I mean, just, you know, his voice right there, finish watering. And you know, Are you spiritual? Just a little bit. <laughs> a little bit. <laughs> After that moment. You Have were. you ever had that happen before or since? Um yeah, since um, I I kind of think he's still around. Uh huh. And his dad, um, you know, every once in a while we see his dad running around. Oh, you do? Yeah. Um, Interesting. People think I'm crazy. You know, some people That's like cool man. You know, some people. Well, everybody thinks I'm crazy anyhow, so I don't really care. Yeah. <laughs> but um, yeah, every once in a while, you know, we'll see you know this little Japanese guy in in brown pants. You know, those khaki colored pants that the Japanese gardeners wear with a little brown. You know, button-down shirt. Right. And, you know, it's Jim's dad running around the back of the nursery. Like, and I'm not uh, the only one that's seen him either. Some of the people that have worked for me over the years, you know, have said to me, you know, there's somebody here. Like and, uh, clear as day, like a human being or kind of like semi-transparent, yeah, no, ghost-like vibe? Not, not ghost-like and not quite human, but, you know, definitely there. Huh. You know, like kind of off in the distance through the fog maybe. Uh, and he always wears the same thing. You know, he's got those tan pants and a tan shirt. Interesting. Um, That's really fascinating. So, yeah. So, so, um, so you're overwhelmed and you're watering and all of a sudden you were a painting contractor and now you own a bonsai and landscape nursery. And I mean, uh, how did that transition go? I mean, what happened after that? You s finished watering I finished watering, and yeah, you know, the next morning I woke up and did some more watering. And uh, for the first couple of months, I was doing both. I was still painting because I had contracts that you know I'd already signed that mm -hmm. I had to complete. And my plan was was to I had a crew of eight guys. My plan was to find jobs for all them with other contractors. I don't know why, but it even dawned on me that I could sell my company mm -hmm. until after the fact. Right. But so I found jobs for my guys. Uh, except for one of them who said, I don't want to go work for somebody else. I want to stick with you. And I said, you don't know anything about bonsai or about plants, so I can't pay you that much. He says, I don't care. Huh. So, And he's still with me. Um, to this day? To this day, yeah. Oh, what the Jorge. heck? Yeah, That's he's, awesome, dude. He, uh, he came from El Salvador as a refugee. You know, He fled the uh, guerrilla stuff in El Salvador. Right. And um, he was, I think, 18 when you first started working for me in 1988. I'll be darned. And, you know, he still works for me. So he, he's family. You know, he's part of the part yeah. of our family. Yeah. So and his family is part of our family. I, I laugh because his, uh, his older boys who are, you know, one of them's an engineer for Boeing now, and the other one is like a management at UPS, used to see me and cry. Because, you know, they were Taft's age when back then, and, you know, I... Every time they saw me, I was taking their dad away yeah. to go work. And so they see me and they start to cry. And, you know, when both of them, when they were in high school, wound up working for me. So that's pretty cool. Yeah. That is very cool. Very, very cool. And and so you you obviously found a niche designing and building. I mean, design, build, landscaping is a... Uh, that's a whole skill set in itself. How did you move into that from 
painting contractor, you're a bonsai junkie, and now you own a bonsai and landscape nursery, and and you're not just designing and building landscapes for like any Tom, Dick, and Harry. Like you're building big time landscapes. Yeah, you're designing. I, I am now. I've got you know a pretty impressive clientele, even if I do say so myself. Right. Um, I've never been afraid to try something new, and. It wasn't really my plan to do landscaping. Like, I kind of had an idea that it would be cool to build a Japanese garden here and there. Mm -hmm. um, and I felt like, you know, I could probably do that. But it wasn't really, you know, my goal in life to become a landscape builder. And some guy came into the nursery one day and said, um, can you build a koi pond? And I said, sure. I didn't know anything about koi ponds. I went to the library and I got a book about building a pond. And made an estimate, called him up and said, yeah, I can build your pond for you. This is how much it'll cost, blah, 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 blah. He said, okay. So we went over there and dug a hole and put a liner in it, put some rocks around it and, you know, screwed up a few times with the pumps and filters and stuff. <laughs> but that was in, you know, 1997. He still has the pond, still comes into the nursery and tells me how much he, he enjoys his pond. So, and, you know, one thing led to another. And then I had a um, an actor... Uh, Jason Bateman come in one day mm. and uh, he had built himself a Japanese garden and he came in and was showing me pictures and asked me what I thought. And um, for better or worse, sometimes I'm known for speaking my mind. <laughs> so he was showing me these pictures and I was like, dude, it's crap. <laughs> <You know? laughs> it's like, yeah, no, nah, I wouldn't have done it that way. I would have done this and done that. So he says, well, come on over and look, and, you know, let's see what we can do. So one thing led to another, and I redid his garden for him, and we became pretty tight and uh, became close to his wife. And his wife just referred me to gazillion people. Mm. So pretty much early on in my landscaping career, I got involved with this group of, you know, um, well-off, very creative people. And... um got to have fun creating sanctuaries for them. Cool. And that's what I, I consider a garden sanctuary. For sure. So, um, and because they were referring me to their friends and stuff, I didn't have the usual stuff that contractors tend to have, you know, when they're first meeting a, a new client. And, you know, I don't know about up here, but in L.A., most people's first thought is that, you know, the contractor is going to screw me. Right. And I never had to deal with that, you know, because – it was their friends that was referring to me and mm -hmm. their friends were my advertising. I've never done any advertising for landscape stuff. Hmm. You know, these people were showing their friends, their gardens and they'd say, who did this? Oh, Bob, you got to use them. Um, so, and to this day, I'm still working for those people, you Very know, cool. and it's just kind of expanded out. So I'm really blessed in that area. Yeah. Um, and it's fun because I get to do really cool, creative stuff for a bunch of creative people that actually appreciate it. Yeah. And, and value it immensely, and, I bet. Yeah, and definitely value it. I mm. mean, because for a lot of them, you know, it is a sanctuary. Um, so it, it's kind of an awesome thing. Hmm. And uh, and I get to do bonsai. Well, I mean, how then, I mean, bo your, your bonsai passion led you into the Kimura Bonsai and Landscape Nursery, you know, and becoming the purveyor of it. But, I mean, or the proprietor of it, but... Then you're doing all of this landscaping. How much bonsai did you get to do through all of this? Um, enough. I've been, I've always been lucky to hire good people. Mm -hmm. So like for my landscape crews, you know, I can now, I spend an hour or two each day on the job with them, 
make sure that they have the materials that they need and that, you know, I, they know what I want them to do. And I can pretty much leave them on their own. So, and that's a blessing because it gives me time to go back to the nursery and do bonsai. Are you still designing the landscapes or does your, do you have a, a designer? No, I or, do it. You still and, do? Yeah. And it's all kind of really organic. Mm-hmm. Like I've never learned how to draw um, and computers just confound me. Yeah. Um, I'm just, you know, so like I've, I've got probably six different computer drawing programs that, you know, I've put the disc in and within 10 minutes that I screw this. Yeah. Right. So, you know, uh, it just doesn't work for me. Yeah. Um, but pretty much what I do is I, I meet people, I sit down and I talk with them and kind of get a feel for what they want or I get a feel for what I want and convince them that what I want is what they want, Sure, which is more than what I, mostly what I do, <laughs> um, you know, uh, well, that's why they're hiring you, so, honestly. Yeah, right? exactly. For your ideas um, and your ability to to make it happen. So, and you know, I've got really good people that work for me, and I, like I said earlier, I've never been afraid of a challenge. Mm-hmm. So, people say, you know, can you do this? And now my standard answer is, yeah, if you give me enough time and enough money, I can do anything. This is Los Angeles, mm-hmm. and it works. You know, do you have? Um... Do you have like steadfast resources that you go to to source stone, to source landscape material, yeah. or or do you have to constantly be on the hunt for all of these resources to continue building these kinds of landscapes? Um, both. You know, I mean, luckily in Los Angeles, there's tons and tons of nurseries. Mm-hmm. You know, not as many as there used to be. Um, you know, the the 2008 crash kind of wiped out a lot of small places, mm-hmm. but there's still, you know, people really value their gardens in Los Angeles. So there are tons of nurseries. Sometimes the problem is, is finding those unique pieces because, you know, they all grow the same 30 plants mm-hmm. um, and stone too. You know, um, I spent a lot of time traveling between Santa Barbara and San Diego looking for stone. But again, there's yeah, there's a lot of sources for it, so mm-hmm. it, it's not generally not that difficult. Yeah, to find stuff. And so, in between landscaping, you're going back to the nursery and you're continuing to indulge and expand in your bonsai passion. Are you still a continual personality on the club scene? Um, I am at, now at, at at that time at that time as the nursery. No, the... shortly after I took out over the nursery, um, the first year or two, you know, I was I was still involved in all the clubs, and you know, the clubs loved it because every time I went to a meeting, I would bring material and donate it and stuff like that. Um, but club politics started to rear its ugly head, and you know, there were people that were. You know, saying, oh, you're just doing this to promote your business. And I was like, mm. well, yeah, but what's wrong with that? You right. know what I mean? This is a bonsai club. I have a bonsai nursery. We should be supporting each other. Um, and, you know, there's a few things happened here and there that kind of turned me off of the club scene for a while. So I basically gave up my club memberships on everything. Mm-hmm. Um, even California Bonsai Society. Um, I stopped going to meetings. In fact, I stopped paying dues. <laughs> um, but they never dropped me from the rolls. And uh, probably for a good eight or nine years, I was not very active at all in the clubs. I'd go to, you know, the club's annual banquet or, you know, auction I would kind of go to once in a while, bring a couple of plants to donate and buy stuff. And I don't know if I should say this, but I'm going to anyhow. A lot of times I would buy it 
just because it was being sold too cheap. Yeah. Um, and that's a problem in Southern California. Most definitely. Uh, because we've got so many practitioners of bonsai, and especially that are getting older now. There's a lot of material out there that gets sold for a lot less than what it should. Mm-hmm. And it makes it difficult to do business. Yeah. Um, so I would go buy up a lot of this stuff. Um, and it, that's changed a little bit. You know, people have uh, started to sell stuff for more than what they used to. Like used to California Bones and Society has a um, annual sale every year after Thanksgiving. <clears throat> and you used to be able to go buy California junipers for two or three hundred dollars. Yeah. I mean like these amazing trees. Can't do that anymore. Yeah. But um but it's it's still a problem. You know, people just don't have the the value for material there like they do in other places. Like I get people that come from the middle of the country and they come to the nursery and they see, you know, five gallon junipers that we sell for seventy five or ninety nine dollars, and they're like, Wow, you know, people from LA come in and they're like, really? This is a hundred dollars. Why? You know, yeah. they just don't get it. It's always been like that. I mean, I remember being in college and going down there and going to some bonsai club meetings, different clubs in the area, you know, and, and people just complaining about prices and, and seeing the things that were selling for the price there and just being like, what, what world did I just walk into? Yeah, it's a weird thing, and I don't think it happens anywhere else. No, Southern California is its own little ecosystem that almost is a bubble, impenetrable to a degree to outsiders for a prolonged period of time, uh, but completely incomprehensible as a bonsai culture. Yeah, it's it's tough. Um, Interesting, unique... Beautiful, fascinating, very much a, a mecca and a birthplace of, I think, the original bonsai movement in North America, one of them anyways, uh, but a total anomaly and completely confusing. Yeah, absolutely. And still is. And I've been involved in it for you know years <laughs> and it's still confusing to me sometimes. I'm just like, uh, I don't get it, but that's the way it is. And I'm, then luckily the internet came along and uh, right. you know, internet sales and that kind of helps keep the gate open a little bit. (laughs) Yeah. But I mean, it's fascinating to talk to you because you were in it in at at one of the real peak, like high enthusiasm. All of the personalities were in play. Like you were there in the late 80s, early 90s. I mean, you were there at the point where it was really hitting maximum RPMs. And you also being a prominent nursery in the area and a and a bonsai personality that has been through from from that real significant surge of energy being another beating heart and a pulse of that in your own facility you've also seen the ebb and flow of of the southern california bonsai community and i mean when i don't i don't know if there was a personality that sort of kicked off the trend of 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 Southern California sort of losing its momentum, but there was a point where Southern California kind of lost its momentum, or at least its progressive nature in bonsai. Yeah, and I think that happened when everybody got old. Mm-hmm. You know, um, it really, really happened dramatically when John died. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, they kind of lost the guy at the till. Mm-hmm. Um, was it was it that? Was it that much of just an absolute 
sledgehammer impact when he passed away? Um, yes and no, because he, you know, he had retired three times before he passed away, so he was kind of backing out of it. So it wasn't kind of, he wasn't quite the driving force that he was. Mm-hmm. But when he started to slow down, Bonsai in Southern California started to slow down, and um, I think for a while there it was kind of you know somebody a ship with nobody at the tiller you know um and nobody really took control and there was john and then there was you know this group of ben harry and all those guys and then everybody else Mm. and um you know to a certain degree they still kept it up like you know harry harrell harrell didn't stop until he died yeah yeah he was like the ever already bunny you know he just kept on going bruce yasu same way uh but bruce was always more of a private you know he was never really out in the forefront in the public yeah he was a big part of the bones i see in southern california you know especially for containers and stuff like that but even for you know his skills as a bonsai artist but he was kind of more in the background mm-hmm. um but yeah as when john started slowing down is when things started slowing down there and it got stagnant yeah um up until very recently, you know, the last five years or so, um, things were the same as they were in the mid eighties. Mm-hmm. You know, the clubs hadn't changed. They had the same demonstrators doing the same demonstrations and, you know, um, people were getting bored and nobody was really doing anything to change that. Mm-hmm. And what's, and what's shifted? You said the past five years, I mean, you can see it. And you can feel it. Uh, Southern California, it's fascinating because you have these batteries of bonsai culture. No matter what country you go to, these batteries of bonsai culture exist, right? I mean, like, when you talk about bonsai in Japan, bonsai in Japan without Omiya Bonsai Village, and in particular without Monsaiyan, would lose a centrifuge of bonsai culture in Japan. Mm. Right. And, and when Saburo Kato died, I mean, this is a, this is a big deal when Saburo Kato died. Uh, and, uh, his son just recently passed away. The grandson has been the, the primary driving force of Monsaiyan since as long as I've known Monsaiyan. I mean, he was operating it even when Saburo Kato was still alive while I was in, during my apprenticeship. But, but, Southern California is a battery like that for bonsai culture in North America. And you can feel Southern California bonsai coming back to life. But, and it's the weirdest thing to sense that happening because it was so hard to understand how much sort of John Naka and that generation of bonsai practitioners meant to Southern California. And it was very clear to see that there was a gap when they were lost. A big gap. A big gap, but now you feel it coming back. What is what is that? What is causing that? Well, because because they're gone. Yeah, it made space for people to step into those places, mm-hmm. and I don't think there's anybody that has the the personality or the presence that you know John or Ben or Harry did. But yeah, you know, there are people like Ted Matson, mm-hmm. um, you know, who is he's a curator at the Huntington now, right? And um, you know, Ted's always been a, a force in bonsai in Southern California, and yeah. um, you know, he was never, um, you know, never somebody. He was always somebody that people knew, 
but he was able to to step up to a, a, a greater degree, you know, after they were gone. Um, and everybody got to kind of move up a step. You know, and for a long time, there was like, um, it was those guys, and then there were people like myself and Ted and, you know, other people that should have been taking their place when they retired, but they never retired. So um, there wasn't like a whole new group coming in. And over the last five or six years, um, that's changed. Yeah. Um, it started to get some more younger people involved, which I think is a big thing to it. Yep. We've just recently started embracing the 21st century. <laughs> um, <laughs> I.e. using technology. Yeah, exactly. Uh -huh. um, yeah. It's huge. It's, a big, know, it's it a big part of it. It, it. It's a huge part of it. Yeah. And especially nowadays because young people are online. You know, that's where they get their information from. That's where they find things out. Um, and bonsai clubs that aren't, you know, just are, are dying. Yeah. Um, so, you know. And, and so you're seeing, I mean, that space that was made, it's taken people a while to be comfortable with other personalities stepping in. And it's taken a while mm -hmm. for the personalities that are that are starting to find that space to actually to feel, feel comfortable to feel enough comfortable. to step in. Yeah, yeah, sure. And now that that's happening, I mean, um, you are you are at the helm of the California Bonsai Society now mm -hmm. and doing really, really positive things with the California Bonsai Society. I mean, I know you're, you have continued to contribute in so many ways with your facility and your bonsai passion over the course of this prolonged history of bonsai in Southern California. But you're now at a point where your attention and focus seems to be ramping up for bonsai again. Yeah. And I, and I, might, I might be incorrect in that, but I do definitely get the vibe from you that, that Bob Pressler is ready to rock and roll again. Yeah, and in more of a um, more of a public way. Mm -hmm. Like I've always been passionate. Sure. You know, and I've always had you know my students and my thing, but it was my thing. But now, um, since taking over as president of California Bonsai Society, um, I kind of feel like it's an opportunity for my legacy. Mm -hmm. You know, like I'm not a Ryan Neal. You know, I'm never going to be a fantastic bonsai artist. I'm an okay bonsai artist. Um, so, you know, my legacy is never going to be that I've created like world-class masterpiece bonsai. Mm. Um, but as president of California Bonsai Society, I feel like I can really do something in a big way and in a good way for bonsai in general and in particular for bonsai in Southern California. And what, and what is it that you want to do? I mean, like what, uh, to talk, talk about that because I know you're bringing in a lot of guest artists and introducing Southern California to a lot of a diversity of mm -hmm. skill sets, personalities, culture, different bonsai cultures coming into Southern California. Right. Well, you know, CBS, California Bonsai Society, was another one of those clubs that was stagnant, hadn't changed for decades. You know, they were doing the same thing in 2005 as they were doing in 1985. And um, it got to the point where it, the club almost died. Mm-hmm. The president before me had been president for two and a half terms. And um, there just wasn't the, the willingness to do the work or the enthusiasm there anymore. It kind of became a social thing that was happening every month. Meetings were getting smaller and smaller. Um, eventually, it got to the point where they decided to only have four meetings a year. It just wasn't 
feasible to, you know, have a meeting every month. Right. Nobody was showing up. You know, five people would show up for the meetings, 10 mm. people. Um, and then Lindsay just couldn't do it anymore. You know, he was closing down a family business if, after 60 some odd years. And, you know, he'd done it for 12 years and it was nobody willing to step up. And he sent out a letter to membership one day saying that I can't do this anymore. You know, somebody has to take over or we have to fold the club. Mm-hmm. And at that point, I was not interested in becoming any more involved in the clubs or, you know, certainly not interested in becoming president. Um, but when I saw that letter, and it was weird that I got it because, like I said, I hadn't paid dues in, I don't know, seven <laughs> or eight years. But I still got the newsletter all the time, you know. Right. Um, it was kind of like they weren't going to let me go even if I wanted to. <laughs> But when I saw that letter, it touched me because, you know, California Bonsai Society is a big part of American bonsai history. Yes, it is. And for the longest time and still to this day, you know, in the rest of the country and, and around the world, you know, being a member of California Bonsai Society, like, gives you some kind of cachet, you know. Yeah. Um, and it meant something. Mm-hmm. And I just couldn't let it see it die. So, you know, I, I talked to Lindsay and I talked to the board and I said, you know, I'd be willing to take it over, but we need to change. You know, we can't keep doing the same thing because nothing's going to change. And if nothing changes, you know, five years from now, we're going to be in the same place. Right. So I insisted on being able to make some changes and they agreed. So, um, you know, what we're doing now is we, we only meet four times a year. And we've got a decent bank account, so it makes it easy for me to bring in guest artists from around the world. Mm. Yeah, we've had people from Japan, from England, from South America, from Puerto Rico. Um, I've got people coming from Eastern Europe next year. Uh, America, Todd Schaffler's coming in November. Um, Sergio Cuin's coming in February. Nice. So um, we're exposing Southern California to new people. We're exposing new people to Southern California. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's it's really cool. It's interesting because um, at first people were uh, some of the older members were kind of like hesitant about change, mm-hmm. you know, and they didn't understand you know why we would be spending money to bring these people in and stuff like that when we have you know masters here, but you know they're just same old guys doing the same old stuff, um, and the clubs were dying. Yeah. So we're doing things different and it seems to be working. Um, our membership has grown. I think we've gotten 39 new members in the last two years. Nice. Which is, you know, significant. Sure. Um, we have an opportunity to not only introduce Southern California people to new artists, but get to pick artists that have skills that, you know, are worthwhile to people to learn but who not necessarily have had the opportunity to travel to places like Los Angeles. Right. So it, it's kind of goes both ways. It's a, you know, it's a good deal for everybody. Yeah. Very, um, very cool. Very cool collaboration to just expand the bonsai community, the awareness of artists, the awareness 
for artists of the Los Angeles bonsai community mm -hmm. and culture. Like, uh, it, it's almost, <laughs> it's like a sister city program, <laughs> but you're pulling people in from a lot of sister cities. Right. Exactly. And, and it's, and it's bringing the vigor back to Southern California. Bonsai. It is. I mean, it, it is it's getting people interested is getting new people interested and we've embraced technology. Yeah. You know, we've got a whole technical team that are doing things like, uh, putting together a program to teach local clubs how to live feed on Facebook. Mm -hmm. And, you know, people were really against that initially. Like, you know, if we put our, our meetings out there, nobody's ever going to come to the meeting. And what we found out is that it's the exact opposite. Mm -hmm. We're getting people that find out about the meetings because they see it on the live streams on Facebook that never knew they existed before. Yep. And we're getting new members because of that. Yep. Um, you know, we've got, we're starting, we've got a guy that started an Instagram page and we started a YouTube page and, you know, we've got the live feeds on, uh, on Facebook and stuff. And, um, California Bonsai Society Instagram page be traveling, man. I'm yeah, getting out there. Yee, I mean, Jonathan Yee is awesome. He's awesome. He is. This he guy is. has just jumped in. You I know, love John. Both feet, and um, he's he's not afraid to talk to anybody. Yeah, you know he'll he'll put himself out there, and and you know I feel really blessed to be able to have him because um, he originally was a member of another club, mm -hmm. and he was doing all this stuff for the other club, and because of BS politics that happens in bonsai clubs sometimes, um, he was getting a lot of static, mm -hmm. and wasn't getting any help, and was you know actually kind of having the brakes put on him. And he was like, I don't want to do this for somebody that doesn't want me to do it. Sure. So their loss, our gain. Yeah. You know? Yeah, it's it's big. Uh, it's a big deal. Yeah, no, it's a huge now, deal. Because California Boneside Society, people are seeing interesting stuff from you guys now. And that and that kind of that kind of brings me to where we're at because I have a student at Mirai that the California Boneside Society had a scholarship. I believe mm -hmm. that assisted in his capacity to afford the ability to study here at Mirai. And you came to me with a, a discussion of kind of a legacy tree that Benoki had collected. And would I be interested in potentially collaborating on the work for this tree with the hopes that this tree could uh, eventually create more of a scholarship fund that you guys could continue to support education for people seeking a higher level of bonsai knowledge. And I was, I mean, it didn't take much for me to be sold on that. Didn't notion. take anything. I mean, you were just like all over it. I was more than pleasantly surprised. I was thrilled. Well, I mean, you know, like Ben, when it comes down to it, Ben for me, I called Ben on it on the phone in my first year of college He'd never met me. He had no idea who I was. I called him on the phone. I said, I'm really passionate about bonsai. I'm going to school in San Luis Obispo. Can I come down and study with you? And he said, yeah, come down and meet me at the Huntington. It was just me and Ben the first day that I went to the Huntington. I helped him prune some of the uh, landscape junipers, not even the bonsai. I went and worked with him two or three more times at the Huntington. It was always just me and him. He would meet me at the gate. Nobody else was there. And then I started going and helping him in his backyard you know, on his own trees. And that became Ben and I's relationship. And then he's like, we should go to Japan. I, I said, I want to study with Mr. Kamura. He said, cool, I'll introduce you, you know, and he took me to Japan. And, and it was just like the Ben Oki award that's existed through the BCI, the impact he's had 
on bonsai in North America, Central and South America, uh, and knowing what he did for a lot of people to foster their bonsai passion. When you said, hey, I have this very special tree from Benoki. I mean, without Benoki, I probably never would have gotten my apprenticeship with Mr. Kimura. You know, so seeing his contributions, knowing what he meant to me, it was just like the Benoki connection was it. But then also seeing your passion to help people that want to study bonsai now find a pathway and have a vehicle where you can help support them to get to be a part of that. I mean, I the, there's not many projects that I find to be more compelling and necessary as a bonsai professional than something that pays homage to somebody who helped me and also facilitates the growth and expansion of bonsai study for people that are seeking it. Yeah, it's a pretty cool thing. Um, yeah, one of the first things I did was say I wanted to start this scholarship fund. Um, I became president literally right after Ben died. So, um, yeah, he was like really fresh in everybody's mind. Right. And, um, yeah, there's a bunch of things named after John Naka. He doesn't need, you know, a scholarship fund named after him. Sure. Hell, the North American Pavilion at the National Bonsai Museum, you know, bears his name. Yep. So, um, you know, I said I wanted to do the scholarship fund. And at first people were like, okay, but people in CBS don't need, it's not just CBS, anybody. Well, okay, you know, we can, people in California, yeah, no, not just California, anybody. Mm -hmm. You know, if you can cash a check for an American bank, you can apply for the scholarship. And, yeah, we have a bunch of money. We've been sitting on, you know, a couple CDs and stuff. I mean, they have tens of thousands of dollars that's just been sitting in the bank. Right. And our corporate charter says that, you know, we're supposed to promote bonsai and we're supposed to educate people about bonsai and promote the art of bonsai and the culture of bonsai. So I figured what better way to do it than to you know, make money available to people to study. Right. So um, that's what we did. You know, every year we give away five, two, it's not much, you know, it's five, $200 scholarships, mm -hmm. but you know, it helps. Um, you know, I wish back, back in the day, if somebody offered me $200 to, you know, go study more bonsai or be able to take a workshop, I would have been all over it. Oh man. You know, I, I, I can't even imagine that opportunity. Being present, you know, I mean, the the Golden State Bonsai Federation contributed uh, and helped me, you know, during my apprenticeship. And uh, those those things go so far towards helping somebody really be able to and just even feel the support of being supported in their bonsai education. And somebody finds it to be a value and has their back. And that is really huge. And and so this tree that that of, you know, that been collected, it's been repotted at Mirai. It's been now styled. We're going to be producing a live stream uh, showing this process and and sort of, I think paying homage to Ben is very important for what he's contributed to the bonsai community. But eventually the goal of this tree is to be auctioned off to raise money for this scholarship exactly. that is going to be put towards people throughout North America, from what you've just told me, having the opportunity to apply for scholarships that help them afford a bonsai education. Yeah, and I'm hoping that, you know, we can generate enough money from it that, you know, it can fund the scholarship fund for a significant period of time. Mm. And it should. It's a pretty amazing tree. Yeah. Um, you know, and it's not many trees in America have the kind of legacy that this tree does. Right. You know, Ben Oki, who is definitely one of the Iron Men of American Bonsai, collected it and did the initial styling on it. A patron... From so a bonsai patron from Southern California bought it, 
when the guy had to liquidate his collection, um, he agreed to donate it to us to go to the scholarship fund. You put it in a pot by one of the iconic American potters, you know, Sarah Rayner. Sarah Rayner pot. And you styled it. And, you know, you're one of, you're the guy, you know. Um, well, you are. I appreciate that. You know, I mean, you are. Ah, you it's, it's, yeah, it's, so uh, you're, you're definitely, you know, um, long time ago, Ben told me that uh, we're, I don't know how it came up, but we were talking about you. And uh, I, you were in Japan still. You hadn't finished your apprenticeship. And Ben told me you were the next John Naka. Ooh. So, um, and and me, meaning that he thought that you were going to have the kind of impact on bonsai in America that John did. Hmm. And you do. I mean, you know, you coming back and doing the things you've done has turned American bonsai on its heels and, and you know, really upped the game. Um Whoa, I, w <laughs> I wasn't ready for that, Bob. <laughs> uh, thank you. Thank you for that. Oh, you're welcome. But it, it's the absolute truth. I mean, you've inspired a bunch of people. You know, I've been doing this since I was 10. It's a long time. Um, I watch Mariah live every single time. I don't get to watch them live. I, I don't think I've ever watched one live. Mm -hmm. I just don't have the time. Right. Um, but... Every every single time I watch one, I learn something. Cool. And, you know, I really appreciate that. You know, you teach things in a way that nobody else does. Um, you know, you teach things that nobody else teaches. You know, you focus not just on the art, but on the horticulture mm. and in a way that nobody else ever has. Right. Um, and, uh, and the techniques that you teach. I mean, some of them, like your wiring technique. Um you know, change the way I wire. I've been wiring trees for 50 years. And, you know, last few years I started wiring them differently because, cool. you know, I watch things you do on Bonsai Marai. Um, so, yeah, you definitely, you know, part of that history of that tree. And I think, I don't think, I know, you know, what you've done to that tree adds a tremendous amount of value to it. Mm. I'm, um, I, and not just financially. I mean, it's, sure. Yeah, sure. I wish we could show the tree right now. Yeah, it is awesome. They'll see it. They'll see it. Um, they, they will get to see it. People being aware of this, you know, prior to getting to see it, I think is important that they know what what you are doing and they know that there are this this kind of positivity. And I think progressive approach to promoting bonsai education in a way that I honestly don't. I mean the Joshua Roth new talent competition, you know, and the 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 Ben Oki the BCI award. I don't know how much that afforded people the ability to pursue, but this is a this is a scope of one of the backbone iconic clubs of North America. This is a scope of support to the art of bonsai that I think will probably lead the charge for other clubs to also answer the call to duty of helping support and promote the ability for people to seek bonsai knowledge and I education. Hope so. I would be absolutely thrilled if it does. Um, and I don't, I, I mean, it, it, once you said it and once it was like, this is what we're doing, I was just like, fuck yeah, Bob, like way to go, man, way to, way to lead the charge and, and, and blaze new trails and be progressive and, and shift the way that a club is supporting bonsai, you know? 
Yeah, it's important. And, you know, not only that, not only are we supporting bonsai and stuff, but on an individual le level, like two of, the, two of the people that won this year, that won the scholarship this year, one was a kid in high school who um, his school went to, you know, a pretty well-off high school, a private school in, in L.A., and his school is sponsoring a trip for him to go to Japan and study bonsai for a month or so at the Omiya Bonsai Village. Nice. And Holy cow. Yeah. And he's using the scholarship towards that. Uh-huh. Another guy that won is a guy in Florida who um, it's a way for him to deal with his PSTD, you know, um, and that. That's awesome. Oh, is uh, it was he a military person? Yeah. Oh, so he had some PTSD. He was struggling yeah. with. So um, and you know he he discovered bonsai and it helps him. Cool. It really kind of gives him some peace, and he's using the money to study further and, um, yeah. So stuff like that, you know, besides being able to promote the art, yeah, you know, it's just such touches people on such a personal level. Life. That, yeah, it's really cool. It's you know, it's life. Yeah, exactly. And how do um how do people engage with this scholarship? Like, if there are people out there that are like, "Wow, I I would like to apply for that." How do they do that? Okay, I, um, a lot of people don't like it because everybody wants to do the internet, and you know, I'm not tech savvy enough to figure out how to let people email an application in and then pick it randomly. Sure. So um, we have a, a an application period that goes from. Um, the middle of April to the middle of May. Okay. And they have to mail in an application, uh -huh. you know, snail mail, put a stamp on an envelope, address it. Right. And just say, you know, I want to apply for the Ben Oki scholarship. I want to take classes with Ryan Neal, or I want to do a workshop or go to sure. a convention or as long as it's something to, to help increase their knowledge of bonsai, there's no limits on it. Like I don't want somebody to just take the money and buy a piece of material and go sit in their backyard and work on it. Right. But they could take the money, buy a piece of material, and bring it to a workshop, sure. bring it to a class. That's fine. How so, many How many scholarships are available each year? Um, five each year. Okay. Um, um, it'll probably stay that way for a while because you know eventually uh, we're gonna run out of money if I don't find a way to you know keep refund re replenishing. We're the, gonna figure that out. The, but you know, we'll, I'm sure the tree will help a lot. And yeah, as time goes by. Kind of get the feeling that, you know, we'll get other sources um, and hopefully we'll be doing another convention sometime soon. Yeah. Um, yeah, that was one of the things that CBS was always famous for is, you know, every five years they had a huge convention. Mm -hmm. uh, and we haven't had one in, I think, eight years now because there wasn't the willingness to do the work. I remember um, I was a part of the last one. Yeah. That was, the, yeah, that was intense. Yeah, and you know, and it's a ton of work, you yeah. know. And um hopefully within the next two years we'll be able to do another one. Um a little bit different than, you know, the the way they used to be. Sure. But um, you know, I'm hoping so. And and where do people go to find the address and to figure, you know, where do they send it, um, all that stuff? Like internet, internet. <laughs> yeah. Uh, is there um, a, is there a yeah. website? Well, is yeah, California Bonsai Society has a website. Okay. Um www.californiabonsaisociety.com. Okay. We have a Facebook page. Uh-huh. Uh, we now have an Instagram and YouTube page. So will they see a place for the scholarship on the mm -hmm. uh, website? Yeah, and as time when it comes time for the, you know, the application period, I go on every single Bonsai Facebook page and all the forums and, you know, constantly post about it. Okay. So if people are if people are following California Bonsai Society on Facebook, Instagram, et cetera, then they're gonna see that notification. You're yeah, gonna be promoting absolutely. it. Okay, cool. 
And even if they're not, even if they're just part of, you know, some of the online bonsai community, you know, the, the various pages on Facebook and stuff like that, mm -hmm. you know, they'll see posts about it. it. It's out there. Cool. Um, I was a little surprised the first year. I thought for sure that, you know, uh, and we only got, I think, 37 applications the first year. What which, do you mean you only got 37? That's a lot. I expected more. Wow. Like, really? I mean, I don't know. Maybe I have I'm high, high 37, expectations. 37, you're asking people to snail mail in an application, <laughs> which I respect because if you're going to be giving them money, the least they can do is is mail you mail you the applicant. I'm cool with that. I totally respect that. It's not well, about easing convenience when you're going to be given something that assists your bonsai education. You can do a little work, right? Yeah, and it's, I mean, we're not asking them to do a lot of work. Right. You know, address an envelope, write a few sentences, and put a stamp on it. Sure. Um, but, yeah, so I, I don't know. Um, maybe I had higher expectations than I really should have, but, you know, I was a little disappointed. Mm -hmm. But this year, I think we had 67 or maybe even a few more than that. Yep. Uh, which was cool. Although it's a little nerve-wracking because people tend to procrastinate. Yeah. So, you know. They like, all come in at the <laughs> yeah, last day. May 15th, you know, the postman <laughs> was like dropping off 20 envelopes. <laughs> right. I I would imagine that the next round will be significantly more. I think so. Yeah. Uh, because, you know, more and more people will know about it. And I think that, you know, this tree is going to generate a lot of interest and, and excitement about it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and just, you know, I mean, we haven't figured out how it's going to be sold and where it's going to be sold, but we do know that the live stream for the tree airs September 3rd on Mirai Live, and uh, and this will be a stream that will be available to the public. It, it won't just be restricted to Mirai Live members. Awesome. And so, uh, you know, I think people being aware of it, we can very easily uh, communicate how this tree will be made available, and that's something that we'll figure out, but... I'm very excited, super excited, very honored that you would consider asking me to be a part of the project. Oh, we're thrilled that you are. I cool. mean, I couldn't think of a better way to do it. Awesome. You know, I mean, we could have gotten the tree and put some wire on it and sold it at a, a local auction, and it wouldn't have had anywhere near the impact that it's going to have. Sure. I think this tree is going to be, you know, an iconic piece of American bonsai history. I agree with you. I agree with um, you 100%. It's, you know, it will be hard to have it not be at Mirai, honestly. <laughs> well, you know, you can but, bid on it. Yeah, right, right. Well, you know, I might be. I uh, might be. We're not proud where the money comes from. <laughs> yeah, I feel you. Bob, so. uh, such a pleasure, man. Thank you for coming up to Mirai and, and being willing to be a part of the film project for this tree. Uh, everybody will see Bob on the stream. And, uh, and, and I think, you know, a huge thank you for... A very prolonged career in bonsai where you've been a pivotal figure in one of the meccas and centrifuges of American bonsai energy and culture. Uh, you've been a huge personality. The, the, I, I wanted to tell you this. When I was in college, uh, one of my good friends is Anthony Galanti from the Central Valley. And Anthony told me about the 9-11 piece that you created. Uh. You know, and that was the first time that anybody had ever, that I'd ever heard of anybody creating a representative piece that commemorated an event that had such an impact on, on, you know, in my lifetime that I witnessed had such an impact. And I just thought that was a really powerful piece for me, seeing you as an artist use bonsai as a medium to, to, you know, dialogue about something 
so significant as 9-11. And I was like, that, that has stuck with me. To this day, I think about that composition and what you made using bonsai as a medium. And so you have been influential to a very large community of people. And I appreciate it. I appreciate well, you being you. a part of it. Appreciate you pumping the enthusiasm, funding the next generation, supporting the evolution of bonsai, helping in every way that you can bring Southern California bonsai back into a prominent space in the American bonsai community. You're, you're kicking ass, man. And it's awesome. Well, thank you. And Absolutely. I, you know, I, I appreciate all the kind words. It's it's a little hard to hear sometimes, you know, because <laughs> I don't feel that. Yeah, you know, I just kind of feel like I'm doing what I'm doing. That's you that's know, the best part about it, 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 man. It doesn't feel anything special. It's just, you know, feels like what I'm supposed to be doing. Bob being Bob. So that's and it. we appreciate it, man. Yeah. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. Awesome. Cool.